Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 3. As we continue through the, the book of Deuteronomy. Just so you know, um, it's been a... Well, actually, it was just last week we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 2. Um, the book of Deuteronomy, if you look at your your cardstock, there's actually some more in the back if you, if you don't have one yet. Um, the Deuter- book of Deuteronomy is a covenant treaty document. Up through chapter 4, verse 43, is the prologue of this treaty. In the prologue of the treaty, what would happen is the, the ruler, the greater ruler, the suzerain, would, he would list all of the reasons why the lesser people would, would worship him. He would talk about his greatness and his faithfulness and his history with his subjects. We are in that part of the book of Deuteronomy before the stipulations of the covenant, which start in chapter 4, verse 44, where it seems that the Ten Commandments are expounded upon. So we'll continue talking about this, the prologue of this treaty document in chapter 3. Again, God is proclaiming His own goodness. He's proclaiming all of His promises, all of His faithfulness, and all of the reasons why His people His covenant people should remember His covenant promise, which is that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the promise. That's still the promise. That's our promise. The covenant of Abraham is our covenant, just as it was the covenant for the people of Israel. That is our hope as well one day, that we will be with God. He would dwell in our midst. This part of the prologue is often called the travel log. Theologians love making up fun names. So the prologue is now the travel log. It describes the travels of God's people. I'm going to read all of chapter 3 in Deuteronomy. So please remain seated, but hear this inspired part of God's Word. Then we turned and went up the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrad. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lives in Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. We took his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Basham. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, beside very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to the destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salaka and Edrei, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the kingdom of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. 
Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites the territory beginning in Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of the Argob I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. I'm going to explain all this when we look at our map in just a moment. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Verse 14, Jair the Manasite took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havoth Jer, as it is to this day. To Makar I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as the border, as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, from Chinneroth as far as the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities I have given you. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this any matter, this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His holy word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we have just read a portion of Your Scripture, of Your holy word, and we pray that Your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, unstop our ears, make our minds fertile, soften our hearts to hear Your word, to have faith and trust You. Speak to us through Your word. This evening, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just to recap, this is just before the Israelites are going to cross the Jordan. And just before that, they have conquered Sihon, one of the kings 
on the western, sorry, eastern side of the Jordan River. If you look at the map that you have, the, the kingdom of Sihon is the blue area of Gad. And just north of that, where Manasseh had land on the eastern side of the Jordan, that's the kingdom of Og. Og was probably the greatest king in that area. That territory has been disputed from that day until really uh, through the Roman era and beyond. That included some amazingly fertile land, some land that was highly coveted because of the travel routes from north to south. This was the kingdom of Og. So just before entering the promised land, after 40 years of wandering, they conquer Sihon, they conquer Og, and then Moses says, hey, I want to I go in this land. I want to see it. And God says, no. So that's what we're going to talk about, really. We're going to walk through this chapter, but we're going to see that there's no reason why God should have said no from a human perspective, except that He's God. I know some of you have, have often wondered why things were happening, and you've prayed, you've prayed fervently, you've cried out to God for a family member, for someone who's experiencing some chronic illness, someone who has cancer, or someone who has some disease, or maybe the impending death of a loved one, or especially a young person, and you cry and you say, Lord God, please, please do not take this child. Or you see some injustice, or you're experiencing some injustice or some hardship. And you pray, Lord, please, please, this is not right. Can you, can you please have mercy upon me? And then the thing you've prayed for seems to have fallen on deaf ears, and that thing happens. Why? We're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it means to trust God when apparently He says no, and why it would seem that way. At first we see in verses... Well, from verses 1 through 11, that the Israelites did what they were supposed to. Remember, they had to wander for 40 years because of their disobedience. Now, it seems that they're doing it right. They're trusting God. They're not grumbling against God. They're actually obeying God. They're going into the land. Moses is reminding them. God has shown you great faithfulness against Sihon. He showed you great faithfulness against Og. And when you cross the Jordan, He's going to show you the same faithfulness because you are being obedient. You are stepping out in obedience to God. God commanded them to destroy Sihon. They did. That was chapter 2. He gave them great victory. Now He reminds them that Og fared no better. And Og was a mighty man. He was a literal giant. Verse 11, only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. This is a people of giants. They, were, they had giantism, if you will. His bed was a bed of iron. Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth. Sometimes I tell Mary Kay, we're not big people, but we like the king-size bed. And she's sometimes 
Well, I'm the starfish. She's the one who, who kind of sleeps like this. I kind of flip and flop all over the place, and it's a little dangerous. So we often think, well, I wish I had a bigger bed. They don't make them much bigger. Og's bed was 13 feet long. He's a big man. That's a big bed. He's probably 11 feet tall. He's a big guy. And yet the Israelites turned to God and trusted Him. They were not afraid of this giant. Whereas their, their fathers 40 years ago were terrified of the giant. They were terrified of the situation, of the circumstance. But we see that in verse 1, they turned and they went up to Og, the king of Bashan, who came out against the people of Israel, and they went to battle. They fought them. And the story and the lessons are the same with Og as they were for Sihon last week. Trust God. Trust God in His promises. He's told you to do this. Go do it. He's told you to attack these people. Go take them. He will do what He said He would do. So just obey. Just go. Don't be afraid. Again, verse 2. Do not fear Him. Yes, He's 11 or 12 feet tall. Do not be afraid of Him. And you will do to him the same as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So the people were obedient. Og was a mighty king. He's probably the mightiest of all the kings in the area, east or west of the Jordan. Sixty cities. The people were numerous. The cities were vast and well fortified. The walls were tall. And they defeated them completely. We struck him down until he had no survivor left. We talked last week about what it meant to devote a people to destruction. How this was not just some, some arbitrary killing of people. After 400 years of rebellion and waiting, remember God told Abraham that the, the sins of the Amorites would not reach their fullness for 400 years, so your people must go to slavery. They must go to Egypt. But after 400 years, they would come out. There was much patience on God's part, but this, by all accounts, was a wicked, horrible, immoral people. And the serpent was in the garden, and they were to be destroyed. So Israel has a great victory over Sihon and then Og. So just to summarize last week's um, takeaways, because I believe they're the same for this first portion of this chapter, our circumstances might also appear overwhelming sometimes. We might also feel like there's no hope for victory. As Dr. Doug Kelly states, with God, even giants become pygmies. There's nothing in our lives that are hard for God. Nothing. It's all easy for God. He's the Creator. He spoke everything to existence by His Word. Our job is not to reason why, but it's to cry out to God, to trust Him, to wait on Him, to focus on His promises and remember them, and not grow weary of His timing or His methods. He is God and we are not. Israel had wandered for 40 years. That's a long time. Some of you aren't even 40 years old and you're thinking, it already feels like I've lived a long time. 
Forty years they wandered with no victory. And then in a few hours, Sihon is defeated. And then a few hours of battle, Og is defeated. Two of the most powerful kings in the region. God's timing was perfect. So that's the first thing I think we take away is that Israel was doing well. They were walking in obedience. And then in verse 12, we see the result of that. They had blessing. They felt divine blessing. And that is often what we see when we're walking with God. Not always, but often you see spiritual blessing. Verses 12-17, through 17, Moses walks through how the land would be divided. And it's all the land that's east. East of the Jordan River. They hadn't crossed the river yet. So they're dividing up the land to the east of the river. And if you look at your map once again, you'll see that the southern part of the kingdom of Sihon was given to Reuben. That's the dark gray, right above the M of the Moab, near the Dead Sea. The blue area is the kingdom of Gad. The yellow is the kingdom of Manasseh. They had an inheritance that was given by God. It was a blessing from God. And this division of the land east of the Jordan River is going to be replicated west of the Jordan River for the other tribes as well. Indeed, Manasseh, their tribe apparently is so big that they have, they have an inheritance on the east and the west. I heard a pastor when I was young preach a sermon on this text and he said something like, the tribes that didn't go over the Jordan River, well, they missed out on their inheritance. They should have crossed the river. It was like a faith sermon or something. Or an obedience sermon. That doesn't measure up with the Scriptures. Their inheritance was on the east side of the river. This is what God had planned for them from the beginning. Where they would live. Their inheritance from God was on the east side of the river. And it's a huge blessing. We know that from previous messages that land is part of a covenant promise. Part of the promise to Abraham was that they would have that land. Part of the promise to Isaac was that they would have that land. We read this morning the promise to Jacob was that his people, his descendants, would inhabit that land. The covenant promised land for Israel was very important to them. Of course, it still is for Jews today. And now Moses is saying, you've obeyed God, you've trusted God, and look, He's given you your inheritance. The promised land has now come. He's fulfilled His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you have your inheritance. Well, we know today that the land of the promise is just pointing forward to the ultimate promised land for all of God's people. Paul picks up on this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1. In the introduction, he's talking about our redemption. He says, in Him we have redemption, verse 7, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. 
In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you see, Paul sees like the Israelites. You have an inheritance now, but there's also an inheritance that you are going to acquire possession of. The inheritance now is the forgiveness of your sins. You are in God's family. Your hope is secure. You have an eternal inheritance. But there's also more. There's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This is the language of the Israelites. They're going to take possession of the land, of their inheritance. Well, we're going to take possession of our inheritance someday as well when Christ returns. So in verse 18, Paul says that we should have our hearts. He prays that our hearts would be enlightened. That's us, the church. That we may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? The Israelite inheritance in Palestine is a type of the future inheritance of all God's people. The land that they are inheriting points us to our heavenly inheritance in Jesus Christ. Those who were God's people who crossed the Jordan in that day, His real people, His people by faith who crossed the Jordan and took possession of their inheritance, actually get two inheritances because they're going to have an eternal one as well. So we will have an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. That is special and it's important. There's going to be a real land for God's people. But the most important part of our inheritance by far is the eternal communion we will have with God forever and ever. We should long for the day when Christ returns. We should long for the day when we can be in the new heavens and the new earth. But mostly we should long for the day when the dwelling place of God will be with man and He will dwell with them. And we will be His people and God Himself will be with us as our God. So we see that the Israelites were obedient. That's the first thing. Secondly, we see that that obedience seemed to bring great blessing. They had their inheritance. Thirdly, we see that they lived in unity. In verses 18 through 22, see what was happening was there may have been some thoughts that the people who had their inheritance on the east side of the river wouldn't cross over to the west because they already got theirs. But Moses said, no, everyone. Verse 18, all your young men of valor will cross over armed with your brothers before your brothers, the people of Israel. In other words, everyone's going to go fight. You may have your inheritance here on the east side, but you're all going to go fight. And you're going to leave your kids, your families, your livestock. You're going to leave them on the east side of the Jordan in the cities that you've been given. And you remember the Israelites were people who grumbled and complained about everything before that. Now they're not grumbling. Now they basically said, yes, sir, and they did it. These are people living together in unity. They're staying together in their battle. And it was a, an act of great trust to leave their families on the other side. They've just been to battle. They've killed thousands and thousands and thousands of their enemies, and now they're going to leave their wives and children over there and cross a river 
And back then there was no bridge over the River Jordan. It was too volatile. So it was difficult to get back and forth across the river. And they're leaving their families there. This shows the great trust that these people had in their Lord. Certainly there's something we can learn from this. There's a unity in Christ by the Holy Spirit that we also have. Especially the local body of Christ. We dwell together in unity. Because of the Holy Spirit, it's a unity that far transcends nations. That's why we can pray for people who are Christians in other countries and call them brothers. It transcends politics, kin, blood, anything. So that when a brother is persecuted, we all feel it and pray. We mourn with those who mourn. We comfort those who are in need. We provide for those who have, who have some special needs. This is what we do. We treat everyone in the church as family. There's unity there. Israelites fought battles together. They trusted God for the results. So first, we see that they obeyed God. Second, they got great blessing. Thirdly, they lived in unity. So with this great context, we see Moses' prayer. Moses' prayer in verse 23. He's got everything moving correctly, moving right. You would think that this is the perfect time to pray. The Israelites aren't grumbling. They're not complaining. They're not rebelling against God. They're not grumbling against Moses and His leadership. Everything seems to be working well. They're doing what they should be doing. And now Moses, by every standard really, is one of the greatest men who's ever lived, and he's going to pray. Why do I say he's the greatest man, one of the greatest men? He, he was born in royalty, highly, probably highly intelligent, had the best education, the best training that you could possibly get in Egypt, which was the center of intellectual thought, the center of power, the center of everything in the world. This was his life until age 40. And then at age 40, he forsook all the pleasures of Egypt, the trappings of power. And he was, he was off to Midian because he had killed an Egyptian. Age 40. He was a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. That's a long time to be a shepherd. But while he was there, he met God. And God told him to go back to Egypt and get his people. So at age 80... He goes back to Egypt. He defeats the superpower in the world. He defeats Egypt. Be like Bolivia defeating America. It's something crazy. And then he leads them out. He leads them out into the wilderness. He bears their burdens. All their, their persecution of him. Their rebellion against God this prideful and rebellious people, and he's patient with them, he's interceding for them, he's praying. He was probably as disappointed as anyone when they had to turn back into the wilderness for 40 years, and he led them through all of that, and now it's age 120. After all the work and all the sacrifice, and he's speaking to God as if face to face. He knew God. He knew of His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. And he prayed. But you need to remember that there was a time when Moses had also rebelled. We see this in Numbers chapter 20. At the, the rebellion of Meribah, when 
Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff. And water came out of the rock, and everyone drank. Well, God had told him to speak to the rock. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 12, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. But Lord, that was, that was 38 years ago. 38 years ago. Give or take. But Moses in his anger had struck the rock. He did not believe in God. It was an act of unbelief what he had done. He did not uphold God as holy. And this word in Hebrew, you did not believe in me, is the word amen. You did not amen me. Proved to be reliable. You did not treat me as reliable and faithful and trustworthy and permanent and sure. You did not believe me. It would seem that maybe Moses took his eyes off of God for a moment and put his eyes on the rock, his anger. We don't know. We don't know why he did it. He certainly seemed angry. Maybe he wanted Israel to see it. They had rebelled against God once again. And he was bearing the burden of that rebellion. And he struck the rock. That was a long, long time ago. And now he says, God, God, please. And this is really a model prayer in verses 23 through 25. If you ever want to pray, you don't know how to pray. This is a good prayer. I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, You have only begun to show Your servant Your greatness and Your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works or mighty acts as Yours? Please let me go over and see this good land beyond the Jordan. Please. He pleaded with the Lord. This is a word that means, certainly it means pleaded, but it's a, it's a heartfelt cry. It's, it's showing compassion or be generous or show me mercy. Have pity upon me. It's the same word in Psalm 30 that says, Oh Lord, I cry to the Lord. I plead for mercy. He's saying, please. How many times have you cried out to God for mercy? Well, you're crying out to a God who loves His people. This is a good prayer. It's a prayer that remembers who God is. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. And he calls God Yahweh, Adonai, which is Master, Lord. And he calls himself his slave, his servant. He's crying out to his Lord, to his Master, and he's saying, please, let me go. You can do everything. You have all things in your hands. No one is as great as you. Please let me see this land. He's pleading the promises of God. So Israel had obeyed God. The circumstances were all good. They had received blessing from God. They were living in unity. And now Moses is pleading the promises of God. Prayers don't get much better than that. But God said, no. No. The Lord was angry with me because of you. He would not listen. 
And the Lord said, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So Moses was always persistent in prayer for their forgiveness of the people of Israel. And it brought about great deliverance for Israel numerous times. But now his persistence in prayer makes God angry. Well, it wasn't the prayer that made God angry. He was angry because of the people of Israel. And Moses, as leader, bore that responsibility as well. But also, this harkens back to Numbers 20. He struck the rock and God told him, you will not enter. You will not enter. You are going to bear the consequences of your actions. Well, that's not a popular message today either, is it? Nobody wants to bear the consequences of any actions. God would be honored in this hard providence of this discipline. So God hears Moses' heartfelt and sincere prayer. And He says no. And there's nowhere in Scripture that we see Moses being embittered by this, being angry by this. It doesn't indicate that at all. He continues to serve God. He knows God is the Lord. He knows God is His Master and His, His Yahweh God. His Almighty God. So why did this happen? Well, there's... Two reasons I think that are apparent from the text. First of all, Moses needed to have concern not so much for his own happiness, but for the the well-being of the church. Joshua. He was told to go and strengthen Joshua. Twice in this passage, we see God say, Joshua is going to lead them across. You need to go disciple Joshua. Stop focusing on your own happiness for this moment. And look to Joshua and stop talking to me about you going and getting what you want. But secondly, we see that Moses is told to trust God's plan and God's glory. Enough from you, he says. Don't speak to me about this again. But even in the midst of the no, there was a measure of grace, wasn't there? He said, climb up the mountain and look north, south, east, and west. And you'll see all the land that I'm going to give my people Israel. There's even grace in the no. And all that God does for all of His people, including you, is always in the context of love. You may not see it. You may not know exactly why this difficult thing is happening. But in the midst of a no answer to your prayers, you need to just trust God that something bigger is happening. Trust Him. His plan is wonderful. It's more wonderful than you can imagine. Even in the midst of the most difficult hardships, there is something that God is doing. And this was true of Moses as well. And I'm just going to close with this before we partake of the Lord's Supper. God's plan was so much more wonderful and so much more good. God did tell Moses, no, you will not cross the Jordan. But you know what? Moses did put his feet on the promised land. He came down on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, and he stood there and he talked to our Lord. It couldn't have been more glorious than that. Only there was a difference. Now he wasn't looking at the land. Now he was looking at his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, eye to eye. As we turn to the Lord's Supper, let's take a moment and pray. Almighty God, we thank You for this this time to study Your Word. We thank You for...
the lessons we can learn from Moses as he lifts up his prayers in the midst of what seems like perfect conditions, places of obedience and blessing and prospering and unity. And yet you still told him no. But you had a greater plan and a greater purpose. And it was about your own glory and the glory of your church and raising up Joshua. And Lord, let us, when we face difficult providences in our own lives, and we pray earnestly for what we need or think we need, and you, you answer with something else. Lord, let us trust you. Give us grace to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.